It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. July 6th, 2003 was a routine Sunday for Joni Harper. Along with her mother, Ernestine, Joni attended the Church of Christ service in East Bakersfield, California. Joni brought along her children, four-year-old Marcus and two-year-old Lindsay, as she did each week. This time was special, as it was the first church service for her newborn baby, six-week-old Marshall. After the service, the family drove back to Ernestine's home. The house stood out as it was securely guarded by a spiked fence, unlike the others on the block. The family of five settled in and all prepared for their afternoon naps. But that Sunday would mark a break in routine when all five family members were shot dead in the home. Although the crime scene looked like a break-in, the truth was far more sinister. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. One family member missing from that day was Joni's husband, Vincent Brothers. To people that knew him, Brothers was an upstanding member of the Bakersfield community. He was the vice principal of Fremont Elementary School, a mentor to children, and a family man of faith. But behind that wholesome facade was a cold-blooded killer. At the time of his family's murders, Brothers told investigators that he was visiting family in Ohio. While brothers told one story, his rental car told another. The following April, Vincent Brothers was arrested for the deaths of his wife, mother-in-law, and three children. In May of 2007, he was found guilty of five counts of murder in the first degree and was sentenced to death. He remains incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison. Mark Safrick is a retired FBI supervisory special agent and was a member of the Bureau's elite behavioral analysis unit. He joins me today to discuss why that crime scene was so unique and shares how law enforcement agents were able to extract the truth from the scene. I got called about a month after this mass murder case that happened in Bakersfield, California. They really felt that the time was about July 6th of 2003. And about mid-August, I got a call from Bakersfield PD. Now, I had worked with Bakersfield before. And because in, in the FBI's behavioral analysis unit, I was essentially assigned to the West Coast, I had a lot of contacts out of California, Los Angeles, and that area. So I got this call uh, from Jeff Watts who was one of the homicide detectives in Bakersfield about this really unusual mass murder case. 
And they were really looking for somebody to conduct an analysis of this. They were pretty sure that there was some elements of staging in this case, but then how to present it and other behavioral dynamics within this case, you know, they, they saw these elements, but they weren't really sure, you know, how to talk about them or, you know, what they were really looking at because the facts, I think, sort of stand on their own, but it's a very complex case. Uh, it really, when you talk about movement of the offender and access into this, into the premises. So essentially what I ended up dealing with, and, and after I traveled to Bakersfield to look at this scene, is that you essentially had the Harper family, which consisted of five members. It was Ernestine Harper, who was the older woman who owned the house, her daughter, Joni Harper, and then their three children, Marcus, who was four years old, Lindsay, who was two, and Marshall, who was just a six-week-old infant. And all of them were found deceased in, in Ernestine's residence. Now, Joni was married, but she was currently, at the time, she was separated from her husband, Vincent Brothers. And he was living in another location within, within uh, Bakersfield. So whenever you have like family members murdered, of course, police are going to be looking at really the husband, the boyfriend, when it, that, that's really the first line of investigation. And that's where Bakersfield went with that. They, they started looking at uh, Vincent Brothers and they, they found out that actually on July 2nd, so about four days before this, uh, these homicides, Vincent had boarded a plane at Los Angeles International Airport and had flown to Columbus, Ohio via Chicago. Those flights were confirmed. He'd gone to Columbus to visit his brother and his family. So initially, Vincent was uh, essentially ruled out. You know, he, he didn't become the primary. So as in any good investigation, you, you need to have parallel lines of investigation. So you can't just focus on, say, husband, uh, boyfriend, whatever. You've got to be looking in other areas. Well, one of the ways that you do that is by looking at victimology. In other words, the question I'm asking is, why were these people targeted for this mass murder on this particular day in this area of Bakersfield? This was a Sunday afternoon in the, in the middle of the afternoon when there's a lot of people around this area. They lived in a corner house and in there across the street was a ballpark and a field. So there were, a, there was a lot of activity. So why this, why Sunday afternoon and why these people? So I'm also looking at the victimology of Ernestine because when you look at children, children typically take on whatever risk level you know, the parents have, especially very young children. They don't essentially have their own victimology. But Ernestine was a very active member in the community. She was um, very active in um, speaking out about gangs and gang activity. And there was the, the feeling that potentially that her activism in this area uh, led some gang members to target her and the family for elimination. So this is, this is one of those areas of parallel investigation that the police were following. 
But you know, the scene is very complex, and they I think that what they wanted from me was to do an analysis of the dynamics of what's going on in the scene. And that essentially will help them focus on you know, the risk level and who potentially, you know, they could be looking at and what if there's a level of relationship with with the victims. So visiting the scene, I think, was very helpful for me. Um, and then looking at the backgrounds of Joni and Ernestine and really, you know, they're in an environment that's very safe. Uh, Ernestine was she was incredibly security conscious. Honestly, I don't know that I've ever seen somebody that was as security conscious as she was. When I looked at the houses in the neighborhood, most of them had no fences around them. Some had broken windows. You know, there was lots of vegetation to hide behind. There was no, there were no burglar bars or, or, um, anything other than normal locks protecting windows and doors. And then you look at Ernestine's house on the corner of this, uh, of this uh, street, and she had this fence in front of her house that had spikes on it. You know, it's not a tall fence. It was about three feet, but still, it's a barrier for someone. She had no vegetation around the front of their house, so there's no place to hide. Every single window was covered with burger bars. Every door had these, um, you know, sort of like burger bars for doors, just these security doors that you'd have to go through. On top of that, she had multiple locks on each door. And then you go inside the house and on the back door, she had an iron bar that was basically, you know, propped against the door handle. And on the front door, she had one of her dining room chairs propped underneath the door handle like you see in the movies where people prop a door under a, a chair under a door. I mean, the level of security that she had was amazing. And on the back sliding glass door, she kept a dowel in the, in the track of the sliding glass door. And I know a lot of people do. It's a, it's a great security measure. It's not very expensive. You just put a dowel in there. So that was the question when she's so security conscious, how do you get into the house? Right. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Forgive me if this is such a basic question, but so when you see that, and especially the contrast between her house and the neighbors, does that indicate you that she was had already been targeted? Did you say to yourself, she clearly is afraid of something specific? Or does that indicate to you she clearly is afraid of something in general? And that indicates not a specific threat, but more of a general paranoia. Or could both be true? Yeah. I think for Ernestine, this was more general for her. She just was a very security conscious individual. Perhaps her activism in, in, you know, against the gangs in Bakersfield, which are very prominent, you know, might have heightened that. But I think just as in general, from what I learned in, you know, studying her, talking to or, you know, having police talk to her friends, 
that this is just the way that she was, this very security conscious. But it sort of begs the question then, why are you targeting this house? Mm -hmm. Because if you're targeting, typically, if you're breaking into a house, it's for a financial gain crime. So you're either looking at a burglary, a crime against property, or a robbery, crime against persons. Well, if it's during the daytime, typically, you know, it's going to be a burglary. You don't want anybody home. You want to break in. But this would be like the last house you would select for this kind of crime. So I was thinking, you know, with all this security, you know, somebody, this doesn't look like a, a financial gain crime to me. And then, of course, as I got further into it, I realized that it wasn't. And in fact, there were aspects to it, which I'll talk about shortly, that suggested that someone was trying to make it look like that it was a financial gain crime, when in fact it wasn't. Um, so as I looked at this whole environment, which is what you have to do, you know, and then looking at access, like there's no way somebody gets into this house without alerting Joni or Ernestine. So then I'm thinking, okay, so what is their routine on Sunday? What is going on on Sunday? Because at this time on, Ju on uh, July 6th, Vincent is supposed to be in Columbus, Ohio. And so the family is here and they had a very set routine on Sunday. And that routine was that they would get up, they would go to church, and they'd be at church for about three hours. And then they would, then after church, they would go out to lunch with usually a couple of friends of theirs. And they'd spend a couple hours at lunch with the kids and everybody. But then they would come back home and then always take a nap. So Ernestine would be in her room, which was in one end of the house, and Joni and the kids would all sleep on the master in the master bedroom on, on Joni's bed. And they would take a nap for a couple of hours, then they would get back up and they would head back to church. So on this day, on Sunday, they all went to church. And actually, there was a video of them at church, which helped me because in the video you could see the clothing they're wearing and the clothing actually is laid out you know on the chairs in the bedroom so i know that this happened you know on sunday after they got back home they went out to lunch they got back home and and, and the time frames are really tight here so that was all so helpful we know really when they left lunch how long it takes to drive back home they get back home and they go to sleep. Now, when you look at the crime scene, you see that Joni is killed while she's sleeping. So that tells me a couple of things. One, somebody's able to gain access to this house, this supposedly very secure house, and not alert anybody. The interesting thing is that Joni's room was right next to the garage that shared a common wall. So if the garage door had opened, the electric garage door had opened, Joni would have heard it and she would have become alerted. You know, why is, why is someone opening the garage door? But she never alerts, right? She gets killed while she's sleeping. And so do the kids. Well, at least I think Lindsay does. Lindsay is the two-year-old. A uh, little girl, she is sleeping at the foot of the bed. She is facing mom. Marshall is the six-week-old infant. He is lying between Joni, who is lying on one side of the bed, and Marcus, who is lying on the other side of the bed. 
Ernestine is in the other end of the house in her own room. So, um, so I realized that someone has been able to access the house without alerting them. When I'm looking at the crime scene photos, what I see is that the dowel in the sliding glass door is actually out of the track. And, and because the sliding glass door had opened, had been pushed up onto the carpeting. And so I realized this is that point of entry. And we, I mean, I know it was the point of entry really before this, because the when someone was trying to get a hold of Joni, actually because she didn't show up at church, and then a day and a half later, she actually comes to the house and all the doors are locked. And so she goes around the back and the the security door over the sliding glass door is closed, but unlocked. And then she finds the sliding glass door unlocked but and closed as well. So she enters through the sliding glass door, and then she enters into the bedroom. And, of course, she finds this horrific scene of Joni and the kids, you know, laying there. All of them have, are, have been killed. And so she calls the police. So the scene is preserved, uh, and, and, and which is very helpful for me. I get all of the photographs and the videos, and the diagrams of this scene. And, and I see this dowel that is pushed out of, the, out of the sliding glass door. So now I'm starting to get a picture of, of how this may have occurred. The other thing is you've got five victims here, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's the sequence? Typically, when you have multiple victims, one victim is the target. It doesn't matter if you have two victims or three, but if you have more than one victim, typically one of them is the target and the other one is collateral, is killed because they're a witness or they're just on the scene. So when you look at the injuries related to, to Joni, she has been shot four times. She's been shot twice in the head and she's been shot sort of in the back of her arm and that bullet travels through the arm exits and then re-enters in through her wrist. And, and the second shot is also in the shoulder um, upper arm area, but the two wounds in her head are fatal almost immediately. And you can tell that she doesn't hardly move at all from the position that she was lying in the bed. And then Lindsay, who is laying at the foot of the bed, she's on her side facing, you know, the headboard. She has a single 22 caliber gunshot wound to center of her back. And that's a fatal shot. Now, Marcus is on the other side of the bed. But when you first go into the bedroom, it's really interesting because Although Joni is there and Marshall is there and Marcus is there, you can't see hardly any of them except for Joni's body because all of their faces and their head areas are covered with these large pillows. And this was done post-mortem. So after the offender was done, he should have just left. He should have been putting time and distance between himself and the crime scene, but he doesn't. He stays around and he actually goes into the living room and he gets a couple of these big floor pillows 
and he brings them back into the bedroom and he covers up Marcus because Marcus is lying on his back. He covers up Marcus and he covers up Joni. Now, Marshall is already covered up with a little blanket, but he puts another pillow on top of Marcus. So if you're standing at the foot of the bed, you literally can't see any of them except for Joni's body, which is which is coming down out from under a sheet. That's another thing I noticed as well, is that the offender also pulled a sheet up to cover up most of Joni's body. And I'm, I was asking myself, so why is, he, why is the offender doing that? And it turns out that as I'm analyzing this crime, Joni also has seven stab wounds. She has one to her head and the rest in her upper back, upper to mid back area. There are superficial injuries. In other words, they're not very deep. But the, the interesting thing about them is that they were all inflicted after she was dead. They're all inflicted post-mortem. So I'm thinking to myself, everybody has a single gunshot except Joni, who has four, and Ernestine, who has two. She's shot in the face. And Ernestine is actually almost right at the entrance to her bedroom when she gets killed. Now, the position in which Ernestine is in lets me know where the offender came from. And you have to actually look at the layout of this house. It's a really unusual layout. The obvious direction of travel to get from the garage area where Joni's room was all the way to the other end of the house where, where Ernestine's uh, room was would really be to go into the, live, the family room through the kitchen formal dining room, formal living room, into the hall, which, where, which is right where Ernestine's room is. But that's not the direction this guy went. He actually went a different way, which would not have been the, if you didn't know the layout of the house, you wouldn't have gone this way. So that told me this person has a familiarity with the house and its layout because this person took the shorter route to get to Ernestine. And I know it was shorter because Ernestine, even though the killing started in the, in the master bedroom down by the garage, Ernestine was only able to make it out of her, out of the doorway by about a foot before she gets confronted and shot twice in the face. And she goes down and dies right at that location. So, you know, it's very convoluted. Like who, when are these people getting killed? Uh, you know, when are the children getting killed? Um, and what's the sequence? Because the sequence becomes important. And so this is essentially how I worked out, out this crime. And I'll, I'll also tell you that in the master bedroom, there was $107 in, in dollar bills. I think it was 100 and, and then some change sitting visibly on a table anybody could have seen it, easily picked it up and taken it. Next to that was this very large, back in, the, in 2003, these flat screen televisions are quite large and quite heavy. This thing weighed about 60 pounds. All of, this, all of the cables were unscrewed and someone picked that up. Now, if you're going to go to the trouble of doing that and picking it up, it would suggest to me that you're going to take it. So 
now that you're carrying it, why not just take it out of the house to wherever you're going to put it, your car, right, someplace. But that's not what happens. The TV actually gets laid on the floor screen side down. And in, in, in essence, really, the screen is protected. And then in, in the laundry room, which is right next to the garage, separates, it's a small laundry room between the master bedroom and the garage, there's an ironing board, which is where Joni kept her purse. And if you're going, so you, I look at things logically, like what is the simplest explanation? If you're in here to commit murder and then you're going to steal property and there's a purse there, wouldn't you take the purse? Okay, I would take the purse. But let's say you don't want to be seen carrying a purse out of the house. So you reach in and you take the wallet. Okay, but that's not what happened here. Or you could take the wallet out and search the wallet for cash because that's probably what you're looking for. That's not what happens. Instead, the offender takes the purse gets down on the floor, dumps everything out of the purse, then takes the wallet and takes everything out of the wallet, cards, driver's license, every piece of paper, the change is dumped out. Literally, the entire purse is dumped out between the garage door and the door that goes into the hallway. Now, when I see that kind of sort of excessive behavior, I'm telling myself, okay, I, I recognize what this is. This is staging. This is the offender's attempt to tell the police, hey, look, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to think that I was trying to steal something out of the purse and, you're, and you kind of missed it. So I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to overtly show you that I was searching the contents of the purse. And I'm going to do this by dumping everything out on the ground. And then I'm going to get down here and take everything out of everything else. The checkbooks out of the checkbook covers, everything out of the wallet. Because when you get here, I want you to be have, have to to step over this to get to the garage. And then you'll go, oh my gosh, look, somebody was trying to steal something out of the purse. We call this staging. In other words, the offender is trying to create a new scene here with a new motive. So if the killings are personal, what you want the police to think is, oh, it wasn't a personal crime. It was an interrupted robbery. Like we came in here to steal things and oh my gosh, there's people in here and we killed them during the course of the robbery. So now it's a completely different crime. And the reason offenders do that is because they think that if they don't do anything, if they just leave the scene the way it is, that law enforcement will soon focus on them as a primary interest in the case. So in order to avoid that, they try to create a new scene that has a new motive. They do this by altering forensic evidence, introducing fake or spurious evidence, removing pieces of evidence. And typically what they show you is that you're either looking at a robbery, a burglary, or a sexual assault. And oftentimes they combine those. They, they try to overwhelm law enforcement with all of this, this information. But the thing is, none of these things add up. They're not in the right sequence. They're not, the, the, the behavior isn't finished. 
right? They don't carry out the actions to their logical conclusions. And we look at this and go, yeah, this there's things that are out of place here. You know, B follows A and C follows B, but then we have F and G, and you know, and then E and F are much later on. This doesn't make sense. So because I've seen so many staged homicide cases, I recognize that when I see it in crime scenes. And this is what the television was, too. They're trying to tell you, look, we were going to steal the television. That's why we took it. But then if I steal it, you know, I, I don't really want to steal it. I just want you to think I'm, I'm here to steal stuff because that's not really why I'm here. Oftentimes in, Bur in, you know, in these robbery homicides, what I'll find is when you go in and look at the scene, you'll see like, hmm, all the wife's jewelry is stolen. All the wife's valuables are stolen, but the husband's hunting rifles and his camera gear and his stereo equipment and his video recorder, huh, none of that's stolen. So we call that proprietary interest. So you have an interest in the items. And the thing is that if those items get stolen, they really can't, they can't appear again, right? They can't, you all of a sudden, you know, a couple of weeks later, be in possession of all the things that were supposedly stolen, right? When, when you weren't here and your wife was killed or vice versa. So it's a proprietary interest in, in the items. So if that TV belongs to you and you paid a lot of money for it, you don't want the TV to disappear because then it, you can't have it again. So you just make it look like someone was trying to steal it. And that was, that was another behavioral dynamic that I, that I saw in this crime scene is, is this uh, proprietary interest. So now, very unusual in a crime scene to have multiple these multiple uh, behavioral components. You, you have staging, you have depersonalization. That is covering up the victims with these pillows. Now, why would somebody do that? The thing is that strangers generally don't care about stuff like that. And the reason they don't care is because they don't have a connection between either this scene or these people. They don't have a relationship. It doesn't matter to them. So when you see depersonalization, you see somebody going to the extent of now covering up the victim's faces and their bodies, essentially making them disappear or turning them into objects because objects are much easier to deal with than people. And if you have a relationship with these people, if you can turn them into objects by basically you know, obliterating their identity by covering them up or disfiguring them, that's another way that you see it in, in crime scenes. Now I've got depersonalization because we know the offender went into another room after the victims were dead and brought these pillows back in and cover and made an effort to cover everybody up. And then he took the sheet and he pulled this sheet up over, uh, over, um, over Joni. So it's unusual to see that many interesting dynamics. So here, so as I went through the crime, this is how I worked out what happened because when my job in not only assessing the crime and the dynamics within the crime, but also then testifying as an expert witness in court, which is what I did in this case, testified. 
I have to be able to explain to a jury of people who don't have any experience with homicide and certainly don't have any, besides what they see on television and TV shows, but also don't have any experience with these sort of behavioral dynamics within crime scene staging, proprietary interest, depersonalization, undoing behavior. So, and because I deal with those in m many of the cases that I work on, I have, I have an understanding of that. So it's my job to not only tell the story of this crime to the jury in a way that makes sense and that where the elements flow from one to another, um, but uh, in a way that's uh, articulate and understandable, you know, because they don't have this level of experience. So here's what I figured out happened. When Joni and the kids were at church with Ernestine, the house was unoccupied. The offender can't get into the house when they're there. So he comes to the house when they're not there. He uses a garage remote to open the garage door. And then he comes into the garage and he uses a key to get from through the garage door into the laundry room. Then he comes into the hallway where the uh, sliding glass door is. Now there's a there's a you know a, a, a drape over the sliding glass door. So you can't really see the dowel in the in the door. But he takes the dowel and he just lifts it out briefly, just a little bit. It's still sort of in there, but it's not going to block the door now when it opens. In fact, when the door opens, it'll push the dowel out into exactly the posi position I saw it in the crime scene photos. Then he unlocks the sliding glass door, opens it, unlocks the security door. Then he closes the door back up and the drapes back, and now he leaves. Because now he has a way into the house, and then he waits and then when the, everybody comes home from lunch and then they all take their naps and they're all asleep, he now comes back through the backyard, quietly comes through the sliding glass door. And as he opens the door, the dowel pushes out. He's already armed with a gun. So this tells me that he's not there to have a confrontation. He's not there to have a discussion that escalates into an argument, that escalates into a physical confrontation, that escalates into homicide. He's there with a plan, and his plan is to execute everybody in this house. That's the plan. He's brought the gun, and now he's going to execute the plan. There's no need to talk to Joni. There's no need to wake her up. This is all going to take place while she's asleep. The sliding glass doors near that room. He walks into the room where everyone's asleep and he shoots Joni twice in the head, twice in the arm. And then he moves around to the front of the bed and he shoots Lindsay in the back. Now, at this point, uh, Marcus has awakened from the gunshots. And, and I know this based on the forensic blood stain analysis that I did on the sheets and his position sitting up. So Marcus then now sits up and the Marcus can see the offender, but he doesn't have time to kill Marcus because Ernestine is up and she is shouting out. She hears the gunshot. She's shouting out for Joni. And now he needs to go take care of Ernestine. 
he goes, he makes this route that I know is the shortest route. And I know this because one of the bullets ends up in the door jam, which if he'd gone the, the most logical way that if someone didn't know the house, they'd have gone that way, that bullet wouldn't, couldn't possibly have ended up in this door jam. But he goes the short route. He encounters Ernestine coming out of the bedroom. And as he's approaching her, he shoots her twice in the face which are both fatal injuries, and she goes down. And the blood spatter, the analysis I did of the blood spatter is all very characteristic of uh, arterial spray. She goes right down at that location, and she dies. But he's not done because Marcus is still alive, and so is Marshall. Now, Marcus has been back in the room. Now, Marcus is so terrified that Marcus is actually biting on his fingers And he's bitten his fingers down to the bone. This is what we know from the autopsy. And also, he drained his bladder, so his pants and the bed are urine-soaked. He's so terrified. The offender now, from the other end of the house, comes all the way back into the room. But he's on the other side of the bed than Marcus. So the offender comes around the side, comes around the front of the bed, and then around to Marcus's side. Marcus is there, and he's got his hand raised up, and he's looking at the offender. The offender puts the gun almost to Marcus's forehead and shoots him in the forehead, and Marcus collapses on the bed. Marshall is the six-week-old infant. The other thing is, when you see the murder of really young children, that should tell you something immediately. First of all, you could kill a child that could become a witness. In other words, you you could kill the witness and police would look at that and go, maybe the child could identify who this was. But for Lindsay, two-year-old, and Marshall, a six-week-old, that simply wouldn't apply. So why are you killing young children? We call that proprietary interest as well. You have an investment in something related to the children. And the children need to die in order for that investment not to affect you. So anytime I see the murder of young children, I'm always very, you know, very concerned and looking very in a very close circle of individuals. But this individual, the offender in this case, reaches over to the center of the bed and shoots Marshall in the back. And the shot is almost directly straight down. So we know he reached over Marcus points the gun at Marshall's back and shoots the six-week-old infant. Uh, So Marcus and Lindsay and Marshall are only shot once, Ernestine twice, and Joni four times. So at this point, you would think that the offender would, you know, flee the scene, but that's not what happens. The offender goes to the kitchen and he retrieves a knife brings a knife back and he stabs Joni in the head and then he stabs her in the back multiple times. Not deep wounds, they're fairly shallow, but he stabs her and then he pulls the blanket up or the the sheet up over her and he pulls the sheet up over Marcus and then he goes out and gets those pillows and covers them up like I described before. So now essentially Joni's covered up with a sheet. Marcus is covered up. They've got pillows over them. Marshall's completely hidden. And in fact, when police were doing the crime scene, they were three hours into the crime scene. They knew they had 
four victims, but it wasn't at three hours in. They discovered Marshall finally when they took the pillow off and the blanket off that that they found this little infant who'd also been killed. So I see this scene. And then, of course, once that's done, then, uh, you know, then the offender departs. So, again, you know, you're looking, well, who's doing this? Well, of course, the husband, you know, he had this alibi of being in in uh, Ohio. Um, but then we, you know, we start to, you know, the law enforcement starts to look at this more carefully. And as I'm, as I'm looking at this, I'm like, come on. This is somebody really close to the family. This is someone that's got a tie here that, that um, you know, is closely tied to Joni. And Joni's really the focus of, of all of the injury here. Somebody's angry with Joni. Now, who, who might that be? So then they're really starting to focus on Vincent Brothers, but he's got this alibi of being in Dayton, and we know he was in Dayton. And in fact, his credit card gets used on the day of the homicides at a restaurant and at a Walmart. So, you know, becomes problematic. He drives with his brother from Dayton, Ohio, to Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And that's where uh, Bakersfield PD contact him and end up flying out there to do an interview. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Was the knife left at the scene? I presume the gun was taken because there were ballistics analysis on the bullets, but you, you knew the knife was missing from the kitchen. Was it because there was a hole in the knife block? Right. Or was the knife right. left? Okay. So the, the knife, of course, law enforcement's looking for the, the weapon that caused the, the stab wounds in Joni. Mm-hmm. What they find in the kitchen, which is a little bit messy, they find this Cutco knife block sort of buried in the back of the kitchen. And there is one knife missing from it. Well, that knife is not found at the scene. So what they do is they buy an identical Cutco knife block. They get the same knife, and the dimensions of that knife match the dimensions of the wound on Joni. So it appears very likely that the offender went into the kitchen, knew where to find this knife. It's not, you know, in the crime scene photos, it's not readily seen. It would be hard to find if you didn't know where it was in the kitchen, but that knife is identi- looks identical to the one that was used. So, you know, police start focusing on Vincent, although he's got this great alibi. And they did an amazing thing. They seized the car, the rental car, because when he got to, when he got to Columbus, Ohio, he rented a car. They, they retrieved that car. And what they find out about the car is this that Brothers was the third person to rent this new car. The other two people who had rented the car never left Columbus, Ohio. But Vincent Brothers, when he turned the car in uh, at the Norfolk Airport in Virginia, that car had about 5,600 miles on it. And if you look at the distance, the round-trip distance between Columbus, Ohio, and Bakersfield, and then you add the distance between Columbus, Ohio, and Elizabeth City, North Carolina, plus the distance between Elizabeth City and the airport, you're within about 50 miles of the number of miles that brothers had on the car. The thing is that 
that's circumstantial evidence. It's good evidence, but it's not conclusive. It doesn't prove anything. Um, what the defense said was that brothers never left the state of Ohio. So maybe you can explain putting that those number of miles on the car. But Bakersfield PD did a really innovative thing. I've never seen it done before. In that car, they removed the radiator and they sent the radiator to a forensic entomologist at UC Davis. And they asked the entomologist, can you identify every single bug in this radiator? And that's exactly what uh, Kim Lindsay did. Dr. Lindsay, Lindsay uh, she removed every fragment and every piece of bug and she identified it. And what she found was there were about four or five species of insects in the radiator that are only found west of the Rockies. So there was absolutely no way that those bugs could have gotten into the radiator if, if he only remained in Columbus, Ohio. So that became a very powerful piece of forensic evidence. Can I say that yeah. with all respect for the poor victims in this story, that that is my favorite anecdote of expert analysis and testimony of all time is that forensic entomologist that really played a vital part in this particular ultimate conviction of identifying this horrific monster that did this, tried to exterminate an entire family um, through something so specialized and so, to your point, innovative and um, you know, dogged on, of, on behalf of law enforcement to obtain that expert analysis. I just love it. And you realize there's no way to defeat that in court. What is it you're going to say? Because the entomologist will say, these are the bugs. I've identified them by this. They are not found anywhere east of the Rockies. They simply do not exist. So it's such powerful forensic evidence. And then really, I mean, I'm, my job wasn't to say it was Vincent Brothers. My job really was to say, here's this dynamic that exists. You've got somebody that knows the house, that comes in when they're asleep, targets Joni primarily, even the post-mortem attack. So there's a level of anger there. And then killing the kids. Like, why do you kill the kids? Well, because Joni was in the process of getting ready to divorce Vincent. So if the wife exists, you are now going to have to pay alimony. And if the kids are alive, you've got three kids that are very young. You're going to be paying child support for the next 20 years. And he had a relationship. And essentially, Vincent just wanted to start over. He just wanted a clean slate. And if you're paying alimony and you're paying child support, you know, you're going to be tied to that family literally for the next 20 plus years. So he just thought it's going to be easier if I just get rid of everybody. Then I can start over. And honestly, I've seen this in a number of cases in which I've, you know, conducted analyses. It's such an evil thought. And you just wonder, like, just wouldn't it be easier to, to divorce somebody? But he had this well thought out plan. He knew he needed an alibi. Right. So in, that's how he got the, the charges at the restaurant and the uh, and the Walmart. 
He got his brother to use his credit card those days. And in fact, when they pulled the Walmart um, surveillance tapes of the of the uh, registers, they can see that it's actually Vincent's brother and his wife that are using the credit card. So it's Vincent bro- Vincent brother's brother and his wife at the Walmart using the credit card. And did and, the and brother he, know? Did, was the brother aware though of the nefarious? Um, reason behind it? Or was he just told by Vincent, use my credit card, do me a favor, I'll explain later. It's hard to believe you could ascribe another human to such evil acts, to your point. I I can't imagine someone being on board. I I don't believe he knew at all. He was just asked to, you know, uh, to use the card and on Sunday. Mm. And Vincent Brothers drove straight back, paid cash, um, you know, when they pull the financial records, you see he got a, a large amount of cash. So he's buying gas with cash. But he drove straight from Columbus, Ohio, back to Bakersfield to commit the murders, committed the murders, turned around, drove straight back to Columbus, really to ensure the alibi. I mean, he, he thought this out. He knew that based on Ernestine's level of security, that he wouldn't be able to just get into the house. He couldn't use a key to get into any of the doors except the door from the garage into the laundry room. And then it's like, you know, I realized like I might be the primary suspect because, you know, I'm married to her. We're, you know, we're separated. We're, we don't have a good relationship. I'm involved with another woman. Clearly, I'm going to be the focus. So I need to throw that focus somewhere else. Hence the staging to make it look like it was gang related or robbery, you know, some, something else, but the killing of the children, when you see that, especially with really young children, you either have someone where you have psychotic processes going on and severe mental health problems when parents are killing children or revenge, you know, for the other parent, or it's related to something financial that is going to cost you in the future. So that's a real red flag for me to see really young children that are murdered, especially a six-week-old. What really? What was the point in killing? You know, Marshall. It's just terrible. And I think when you think about this, the level of evil for somebody, the parent of your four-year-old son who is looking at you watching you walk up to him, terrified, bitten his fingers to the bone. There's blood everywhere from this. And to shoot your son while he's looking at you in the forehead and literally be totally unaffected by that is just evil. It's heinous and evil. And individuals like that are, you know, it's really hard to explain you know, that level of depravity. Mm-hmm. 2007, the trial was held mm-hmm. and um, he was convicted on all five counts of first degree murder and uh, sentenced to death for all five counts. And uh, at last I knew he was in San Quentin prison on death row. Did he ever exhibit or display remorse? No. I mean, he did on the stand, right? He cried on the stand, but... When you watch somebody like this, and I have watched those tapings of that, you really get the sense that the person he's crying for is not his family. It's for himself that he got caught and that essentially his life is over. Guys like this just 
you know, that, that level of, of depravity, you don't see remorse. You see the words, you hear the words, you see the facial expressions, but you don't see the feeling behind that. And I, and I really don't think somebody who could kill their own children in that gruesome way could really feel remorse. We'll be right back with more of this story. May I ask a clarification? So on the behavioral tenets that you mentioned, so um, just because I want to know which behavior you meant when you said undoing. We've got proprietary interests in the TV. We've got posing, staging. We've got depersonalization. What was the Mm -hmm. undoing? What did that refer to? So undoing behavior is essentially a symbolic way to undo the crime. You clearly can't undo the homicide, but you engage, the offender can engage in acts that tend to focus on the victim. And the typical things that you'll see is that they will redress the victim. They'll put the victim into a position of peace or repose. Um, They'll put them on a bed and they'll put their hands across their chest Um, They'll clean up the wounds. They'll redress them into something that doesn't have blood on it or, you know, stab wounds or cut marks. Um, They'll put a pillow under the head of the victim. Um, So you might be able to make an argument that the reason that he covered up uh, Marcus and that he covered up Joni was a sense of undoing behavior. In other words, this symbolic attempt to sort of fix the crime. Because he stabbed um, Joni in the back multiple times, in mid-back, when he pulled up, we know he pulled the sheet up because the sheet is actually over the stab wounds and there's no stabbing through the material. So we knew we know he did that afterwards. Joni was in her bra and panties. So sometimes... Uh, offenders don't want, I know it's the, it's, it's an odd thing because you think you just killed your ex-wife or you killed your wife. Why would you care whether police or fire or paramedics, first responders would see your wife, you know, in, in her undergarments, but there's some, with some individuals, that's why they would cover her up. I don't want the first responders, the people that are going to be in here, the coroners or medical exam. I don't want them to see her this way. So I'm going to cover her up in this sense, um, this symbolic attempt. And, you know, it's not really clear to me if it's, if that is undoing with him and with Marcus, it could be. Um, It also could be the attempt to depersonalize her. In other words, the less you can see of her and the less you can see of Marcus, the easier it is to just treat them as objects. And remember, he's got things to do in the room, right? So he doesn't want to look at what he's done. Sometimes it's about the amount of blood. Sometimes it's about about the injury. Some offenders want to interact with the victims afterwards, but don't want to be able, don't want to look at them or see the blood or whatever. But sometimes if you've got things to do, like he did in this room, right? He, he's going to undo the TV and set it down. It's just, you know, you, you don't want to deal with what you've already done. And if you can 
change them into objects that you can't see, you can take away their identity, then it's a lot easier to deal with, you know, essentially with what you've, what you've just done, essentially killed your wife and your three young children in the same place. And your mother-in-law. Yeah. Oh. Well, he didn't get along with Ernestine, you know, and Ernestine didn't really care for Vincent. So, you know, it's, and it's interesting dynamic because Vincent brothers, you know, he was the vice principal of an elementary school. So he dealt with children all the time. But Joni was a, you know, she was a very sensible woman, had a very good job. And, you know, I think she just saw the writing on the wall, Vincent Brothers' infidelity, you know, his relationship with this other woman. And, you know, she just wasn't going to put up with it anymore. And I think that was sort of the trigger for Vincent, you know, the getting divorced. And now if I get divorced, oh, my gosh, I'm going to alimony. I've got child support payments for the literally, um, you know, for the next 20 plus years. I just don't want to deal with that. So in his mind, making it all go away was the solution. But, you know, when you when you commit a crime like that and then you engage in all this behavior, um, when you have people like me and you have really, really great investigators like Jeff Watts and Mitch Willoughby from Bakersfield PD, who were really dogged on this investigation, really just excellent. You, you're just not going to get away with things like that. You just, it's gonna, it's gonna catch up with you. It took a couple years, you know, to, to get all this together. Um, but in the end, you know, he was arrested for all five murders mm -hmm. and convicted. Mark Safrak, you're just, you're so brilliant. You're such an incredible, oh, um, no, you really are. And I learned so much from you. You are an incredible wealth of information and experience. And I'm so grateful to you for your service um, and for taking on a job with such monumental impact. It's such devastating information that you are mining through. And I'm grateful to you for your dedication to justice, which at the end of the day, we are all trying to achieve or, or hope that is actually exists. Thank you for joining us here today. Are there any last words that you'd like to share with our listeners before we close? I would just say that, you know, for me, it's always about the victims mm -hmm. because this case went on for a long time. The victims deserve justice here. And as much work as law enforcement can do, I'm just one piece in this, in the, you know, in the cog of the wheel that ha I have a very spe specific talent and expertise. And I'll bring that to bear for the victims in this case so that they end up seeing justice. And that's really, in all the cases that I work on, that really for me is the ultimate goal. Thank you to Mark Safrek for joining us once again on the show. To hear more from Mark, be sure to listen to my past episode, Hidden in Plain Sight, The Spokane Serial Killer. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.